Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Welcome everyone to the third episode of Title Nerds. I am Mike O'Donnell. I'm here with my co-moderator and partner, Bethany Abley. We're excited about this podcast because this will be the first podcast where we have a person from outside the firm talking. We're going to have Mike Camp, who is a title insurance salesman for Fidelity National Title and also the self-proclaimed coolest guy in the title insurance industry. I don't know whether that's an oxymoron, but someday we're going to ask Mike to explain how he got that title. But before- and, and I think we can call him a title nerd. Yeah. Mike, do you have any objection to being a title nerd? No, I'm, I'm cool with being a nerd. I make no bones about my the fact that I am a nerd. I don't know, title nerd, I think we'll, we may have to figure that out as we go through this episode, but I'm pumped to be here. And who better to bring into the Title Nerds podcast as the first person outside of Riker Danzig than the coolest guy in title insurance, Mike Hamm. So I'm pumped to that's, be here. That's why you're our first guest. So Mike, <laughs> I think most people who listen into this podcast about a million and a half so far, I think, listen to every podcast, are in the title insurance industry or have some idea that title insurance is insurance that's provided for insuring individuals have good title to their property or good liens. But what the heck is a title insurance salesman and how do you become qualified to be a title insurance salesman? Can you sort of elaborate how you got into this? Did you wake up at age five and say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Well, naturally, isn't that what happened to you guys when when you got into the title insurance field and law and all that kind of stuff? So my background is a little unique. So I started after college, I went to TCNJ, played baseball there. I was a college baseball coach for four and a half, uh, yeah, four and a half years after college, started working indoor sports facility after that, and then was just kind of lost. And my father, who Mike knows and has known for a while, has worked in the title insurance industry for a while. So that's, he knew kind of that I was struggling to kind of find myself. And he was like, what about title insurance? And I had known that he has worked in the industry for 35, 40 years at this point, but never really knew exactly what it was. But at the time it was one of those things where I would have taken like any job. And so I kind of, I went through the process, you know, got, did my, I went to the CAPE school, the online school to get the education side of it to do the pre-licensing course, took the test, passed the test. So I am licensed here in the state of New Jersey, which is something that you need in the state of New Jersey to sell title insurance. Did an interview with my boss, Scott Sumner at Fidelity National Title Group here in New Jersey, got the job and was basically just kind of thrown out into the field to try to go find clients. And with anybody in a new sales sales role, it's one of those things where until you actually like dive in and learn what it is that you're selling and how to sell it and do all that kind of stuff, you're never going to get any better at it. So I took meetings with guys like Mike. I took meetings with other people at other firms, developers, realtors, anybody that could potentially be on the buyer side of a real estate transaction. Just tried to immerse myself in this field to try to learn more about what it was that I was at least trying to do. 
So that's kind of the, the early stage, how I got into it. It was not one of those things where, I mean, like you were joking that I just woke up one day and, and I would, was like, oh, title insurance. Yeah, this is going to be it. I would actually, and I you know say this now, which is almost like a karma type thing. I remember when I was younger and my dad would work from home and I would hear him on the phone with people from our company or attorneys that he was working with and stuff. And I would tell him at dinner, like, what the heck were you guys talking about on the phone? Like, you guys sound like you have the most boring job in maybe the history of jobs. And he was like, oh, you know, like, it, it's, it's a good job, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, now here I am selling title insurance. So it's one of those things where, you know, it may not seem exciting. I know you said the coolest guy in title insurance might be an oxymoron, but the more that you dive into this type of industry, I think you appreciate what it can do for people and the way that it protects people and all that kind of stuff in their real estate transactions. So that's kind of how I operate, I guess, and how I got started. So hopefully that answers your, your questions. I got a question. What's a CAPE school? I've never heard that term before. So CAPE school is just a online school that they provide the courses that you need to take to, it's literally called the CAPE school. And so you go online, they give you all the pre-licensing courses and then the continuing ed courses after the fact. So every two years, I need to get recertified, renew my license. Like I literally just did it a month ago. And so you can go on there. They have all the courses. You read through the materials. They do either live classes if you want. I don't think they do like in-person classes. I think they just do like online, you know, virtual classes. You could just kind of do a self-study type thing, which is generally how I work. You know, I'll go through the, the course material, read through the stuff, take little uh, quizzes after each course. And then at the end, you pass each course. And then once you've passed, it's, I think there's three different things. There's ethics, a title medley, which is kind of all encompassing. And I forget off the top of my head what the last one's called. And then once you're done, you take the full test and that recertifies you. And then they help you submit it to the NIPR and they make sure that you're, that you're good to go. So that's what the CAPE school is. I mean, there is, there's other ones that exist out there for, for CE credits, for title insurance sales reps or title insurance professionals. But the, the one that I use is the CAPE school. Mike, I have to say you're making me have some flashbacks here because <laughs> my introduction to title insurance was actually through my father, who in his quote unquote retirement career decided to become a title agent. Oh. And on my breaks from school, I was at home on my parents' deck on summer break with flashcards quizzing my dad for his producer's license test. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah my... my uh... Here. <laughs> yeah, my my studying was very similar. And I would basically sit, you know, like all day trying to because I was still working at the indoor sports facility, knew I was leaving, had already given my two weeks notice because I was like, I just need to get out of here because it wasn't a good fit for a variety of reasons. But that's another podcast for another day. <laughs> and, you know, like reading through material. I mean, I know you guys read a lot. I am not necessarily a reader. But my thing was more like talking it out. So who better to have in my corner? I was living at home at the time. So at the end of the day, after my dad's been talking about title insurance with other people for the entire day, we'd sit on the, at the back porch, crack a adult soda. And, you know, he would just ask me questions. He was like, oh, you know, there's like different aspects of the title insurance industry. And we would just talk about it more. He had me bring out the book, you know, we'd read through it. You know, he'd be like, all right, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I try to answer them more often than not, I would get them wrong. 
But that was honestly a way better way for me to learn because it was just, you know, kind of talking it out and rather than just reading through all the materials. So it worked out. I passed and I've passed each time since then. So you got it. That's what you got to do. Now, Mike, can you sort of tell us, other than selling title insurance, how do you help or assist your clients? What do you do? So basically the way that I approach it, and I, I feel like, especially here in New Jersey, this whole industry in states that the rates are regulated and New Jersey is one of them. New York's another one. Pennsylvania is another one. So it doesn't matter. It should not matter what company you go to. You're going to ch- get it, You're going to get charged the exact same price for essentially the exact same product. All the rates are filed rates, which means the rating bureau uh, submits the rates to the Department of Banking and Insurance. They approve the rates. So every company should be charging the same rates for premium endorsements, all that kind of stuff. And the forms themselves should look the same. It's just the logo at the top is going to be different. It could say Fidelity, it could say Chicago, Commonwealth. Those are our brands, all plugs right there. And then you know, even First American or Republic, you know, all the other underwriters that exist in the world, they are out there too selling the same product as, as us. So really what it comes down to is relationships and service. So you know, if you have a deal that you want to submit to Fidelity to get in for insurance, I will help you get that process started. And then as that, basically my role is to kind of quarterback it through the process. So I have, we have an application department, we have an underwriting team, we have a settlement team, closing team, the whole type of thing. So basically what I try to do is make sure that that deal, I mean, I, I know in my head when certain deals should be hitting certain points in their lifespan to get to closing. So essentially, if I see that a search hasn't come back, an entity search hasn't come back, and I know that we need it, then I'll reach out to our application department and be like, hey, what's up with this one? And they'll know because I'm not the only sales rep. I think we have five of us right now at Fidelity working in the state. And you know, there's house files, there's national commercial services files that come in from our national offices in you know, most of the major cities in the country. So I know our team, our production side has a lot going on. So for me, with my clients, I want to make sure that I'm providing that service and that relationship and making sure that people feel comfortable because it's the same thing in your guys' business. People want to do business with the people that they know, like, and trust, right? I mean, that's a cliche, but it's very true. So if people trust me and they know that I'm going to make sure that the deal gets from start to finish and we're not going to have any hiccups and there aren't going to be any issues, that's how I approach it. So I make sure that everything goes as smoothly as it possibly can. If I notice issues or if I notice something's lagging behind or if people have questions, I'm kind of the, the point man, so to speak, as opposed to kind of, you can imagine if you're an underwriter working on a file and you're working on 10 files at a time and you have 10 different attorneys calling you about different issues with different things and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to maybe just one voice. So they come to me, I relay those messages and I make sure that everybody stays on the same page and we get the deal from A to B. Bethany, do you have any other questions for the coolest guy in title insurance? (laughs) One thing, obviously, Mike and I are very familiar with this, but I don't know that all of our listeners are. So I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit the difference between title agents versus direct ops and whether or not it matters if you're going to one versus the other, if there are differences in when you should go to direct ops versus when you should go to title agent to get your policy. That's a great question and not one that I normally get, but this is this is all about title insurance. So I like that question. So <laughs> I work directly for Fidelity. So Fidelity is the largest title insurance underwriter in the country. So essentially, we own the brands, Fidelity, obviously, that's our name, Chicago Title, which is actually our biggest brand and Commonwealth. And we own some other ones, Alamo Title, kind of in like the Southwest and, and different places like that. So 
the difference essentially becomes where you have title agents that are licensed to write on the products that we have. And this is, I'm just speaking here in New Jersey, it's different from state to state, but it's sometimes a little bit difficult to educate clients and people that you want to bring in as clients because they may say, oh, Chicago title, because I say Chicago title quite a bit. I use Joe Blow in East Brunswick at the Chicago title office. And it's, you know, XYZ title agency. And then I have to explain to them, well, it's a little bit different. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm not saying they're, they're just a little bit different. The one thing that I have seen is that the, and this is going to be a shameless plug for Fidelity National Title Group. So I'm just going to just lay it out there. A lot of times you have agents that may be smaller. We have five offices here in New Jersey. We have a team of 40 to 50 people working here just on deals that happen here in New Jersey. We are a Fortune 500 company. So we are literally not going anywhere. And we've had instances in the past where we may get a client that has an issue on a title policy that was given out in 2000. Let's just pick a year. That title agency may not be there anymore because they, and the only thing that the title agency actually has to submit back to the underwriter is the cover page. So if we don't have anything else, you're kind of, and you don't have a copy of your title policy, which surprisingly, not many people actually keep, they lose it. And then they're, in a tough spot after that, there's not a ton that we can do. On the flip side, if you had just gone to us from the very, very beginning, then maybe you have an opportunity to kind of find that file and then we can help you out from there. So the support system, so a lot of people will think that maybe the production team that I work with would be the same as Joe Blow in East Brunswick. It's a totally different production team. I mean, I've done some deals in Pennsylvania where I've had to work with an agent and they may be one person. So there's, they are the seller, they're ordering the searches, they're doing the underwriting, they're doing the closing, and they're a one man or one woman show. Whereas on this side, you know, if, there are some things with working with direct upside that we have, there's corporate guidelines that we kind of have to go through. So it may not go as fast as sometimes people want, which I think is a story for another day and a different you know issue sometimes. But I do think that there's an instance where, you know, I know that we've had conversations with making sure that we have, for example, like people want to have us hold money in escrow and we need to make sure that we have a file number open and they, for whatever reason, want to send that money. Like it's like burning a hole in their pocket. They got to get it out. So, but we have to make sure that we go through the proper channels and make sure that we do things the right way. So there's differences. There's obviously a lot of similarities, especially here in New Jersey, because the prices and all that kind of stuff should be the same. But it just kind of comes down, like I said before, it's the relationships and service. If you have a title agent that you work with, that you have a great relationship with, and you get great service from, you really have no reason to switch, right? And it's the same thing on my side. If you get great service from me and you have a great relationship with me, you're probably not going to switch. If one day that agent messes up and you're just like, I'm done with this agent, call me. We give, you could, I'll give you my cell number and you can send it out to your million, millions of listeners. <laughs> Well, and I'll just say a shameless plug for Riker Danzig. We love everyone. Direct operations, title That's agent, right. yeah. underwriter, I, sales. I totally agree with it that. It doesn't yeah. matter. We love you. <laughs> Mike, you know, you are kind of sort of the genesis for this podcast because I saw your very successful blog and thought that's very creative. Why don't you tell us how, how you came about to create this blog, which is now over 100 episodes. Yeah. And sort of how it plays into your business and how do you use it to help your your clients and your customers and, and your friends? Yeah, absolutely. So basically my 
uh, we'll talk about relationships and service. And just to give you like the very bare bones version of my job, my job is to do stuff like this. Talk to people, go out to lunches, go to events, meet people, network, do all those kinds of things. So last year obviously presented a lot of problems for a lot of people and a lot of obstacles to hurdle. And I saw an opportunity at the very beginning, because as Mike was saying, before we got on here, I used to run a lot of my own in-person networking events where they were real estate focused or young professional focused or whatever. And obviously come March, we had a March madness party scheduled for March, I think 17th or 15th, whatever it was the first day of March madness in March of 2020, obviously the tournament was canceled. We canceled our event and then everything, you know, kind of shut down from there. So I immediately started running virtual networking events every week, every Tuesday would run them at five o'clock. We would get 35 to 45 people logging on with us. And I was like, this is kind of interesting. And then I said, Hey, I have all these people. And I've always heard that video content gets a lot of play on LinkedIn. So why not take these people do a five-minute interview, very scripted, three questions, real quick, no big deal, not necessarily with any type of focus, and we'll just do that. We'll post those every day. So we call it the morning spotlight because I would post them at 9 a.m. So in the morning, we would spotlight someone, very simple. And eventually, that got to a point where I, I figured three, four weeks, I would run out of content, COVID would be over, and we'd get back to doing what we were normally doing. That didn't happen. And then I think it was July. So I had done 12 weeks, 60 episodes. In July of last year, I transitioned it into what it is now. So we do every Tuesday, we post an episode that's focused on the real estate industry in some way. So at the very beginning, we were doing a lot of panel episodes on specific topics in the real estate industry. So maybe it's 1031 exchanges or the industrial markets or multifamily investing, anything that could be uh, that. But to get three, two, three, four people on a panel to do an episode is like herding cats. And we did some great episodes at the very beginning, but then eventually I decided that I wanted to kind of shift it a little bit more to the actual personal stories that people have. So how to, if you're a multifamily syndicator, let's say, how did you get into that? What'd you do before? And try to connect the audience, which I know what it is because I could see my demographics and all that kind of stuff. So I, could, I know that they're 25 to 35. They're predominantly male. They predominantly live in the Northeast. So they're a lot like me. And they want to hear the stories that may be able to resonate with them and make that connection between me, my guest, and the audience. And that's what we started to do. And honestly, since I've been doing that, we've done some other stuff like professional athletes and musicians and different stuff like that, just because I like to, you know, branch out and spread my wings a little bit. But the show is still based in real estate and those types of topics. And honestly, if you start putting content and different stuff on there, I started seeing a huge shift in the way that I do business. So now maybe I don't need to go to lunch every single day to make sure that I'm, you know, connecting with people. I could still do that. And then I have stuff on LinkedIn. I have stuff on Instagram. I have, you know, an email blast that I send out. And now all of a sudden I have a 24 hour day sales rep and it's me because if you log on to LinkedIn and we were joking about this before, odds are you're going to see my face for better or worse. You're going to see it on your LinkedIn feeds. So that's really what it comes down to. And it, that goes for title sales. It goes for anything. The more that you stay top of mind for people, the more likely they are to feel like they trust you. And as you could tell, you know, I just kind of put it out there at a certain point last year, I was just like, Hey, I'm just going to be me. And if people like that, awesome. 
If they don't, that's okay. That's generally not who I want to do business with anyway. But you know, that was one of the things that I just decided I was just going to lean into it. I was going to be me. I was going to put the stuff out there. Last year was a tough year for a lot of people in a lot of ways in business, me included. And then, but towards the end of the year, as that month's worth of, of content that I had put on LinkedIn and all those other platforms, I started seeing more and more deals, more than I normally would see at the end, at the you know, end of quarter three, quarter four of a year in still COVID times, I started seeing, I was generating more business. And now this year I am having probably my best year by far. And I would say that that's directly related to the stuff that I've been, been doing. So the connections that I've made through doing a hundred plus episodes of that show, the relationships, like I said, the, the content that I'm putting out there, the, you know, just being a person that has good relationships with people and provides services that go well beyond just, Hey, you know, give me your title order and I'll take care of it. You know, something like that. So it's been a huge bonus for me and a a great way for me to kind of get out there and expand my business and my relationships, you know, not even just in New Jersey, but across the country. Anthony, do you have any more questions? I've got one for Mike. I'll tell you one thing on this podcast, you will reach a, a more diverse audience than male 25 to 35. So one thing I'm, I've noticed in the title industry, going to these events, and you've noticed probably as well, title industry has a lot of women in, yeah. in very serious positions, owning their own title agencies, CEOs of the underwriters. Yep. Uh, so, and I'm sure your podcast hits them as well. Because Oh, it definitely does. You know, but I like I can kind of tell, you know, whoever is listening. You know what I mean? So like, I know who's actually listening to that show and I can tell, you know, if, if I have, if that's my demographics, then maybe I can try to create more content that really drives down and hammers the people that are listening. What male, female age doesn't matter. I just know who's listening. And then if I'm able to create stuff that is directly related to, to them, now all of a sudden I can take that and be like, okay, now we've taken this audience and we've extracted, squeezed every bit of juice that we can out of them, as, as opposed to like getting content in front of them. And then once you do that, then you can start to expand even more, which is what we've done over the last you know year plus now. Well, this has been great, Mike, but can you give us a teaser? What's on the next podcast? The next podcast. So I have, let's see. So over the next few weeks, I have some marketing people. I have a couple that's they invest in vacant land and now they do multifamily. We have a lot of multifamily investors on the show. Today, we post an episode at the time of this recording, we post an episode today with a commercial real estate realtor. She's also an investor, raises private equity funds. I'm trying to think what we have an yeah, but, email. But, yeah, but you also have a lot of people like with interesting personal stories, right? They yeah. do a lot for charity or yep. they have a very interesting background. They came up from their bootstraps or they come from different countries. I mean, that, that's what I see when I see your podcast. It's sort of like what you were saying. You're not necessarily going to learn what you do or, or how to book a title order, but yeah, it's, it's interesting contact that, that you'll learn something from and it's right. connected to the real estate industry. It's connected to the real estate industry. And it, it goes, like I was saying before, it goes beyond like, let's just, let's do the nuts and bolts on how to structure right. a title policy. Let's do the nuts and bolts, which we've done. And that's fine. And we'll do that with the people that we have on the show. But I think what it really, what, what I've seen and why I think that the, the personal relationship side of it resonates with everyone involved is that you drive down deeper into, like you were saying, Mike, their background, 
So like if, if I have a friend that's a teacher and I bring on, which I've had a teacher that was unhappy with maybe how much money they were making or the time and effort that they had to put into classes and all that kind of stuff, you know, now all of a sudden they got in, themselves into multifamily syndication because we're, that's, that's a, an actual episode that we had Julie Holly. There's a plug for that episode, but so she, that's exactly her background. And if you're able to put that story in front of someone, whether they're a teacher or not, you could pick out things like, Hey, I'm maybe not happy with what I'm doing right now, or, you know, I want some more financial freedoms or passive income or whatever it is. Next thing you know, you listen to that and they can kind of tell you how they got into it. Maybe the mindset that they had to get themselves there and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that is what really starts to connect the, the audience with the people. So now while my audience, while my guests are people that I'm talking with, like we're talking right now, and that's great for the relationships that I'm trying to make with them. It goes well beyond that. And now I'm making connections with audience members, people that see my stuff on LinkedIn that are now messaging me to be like, Hey, saw this one, love it. Can you connect me with them? And next thing you know, you start making business happen beyond just the title world, but just within the real estate industry as a whole. And that just helps me, you know, it helps anybody that's doing stuff like this. When I saw that uh, you guys were going to do the title nerds thing, I was like, that's awesome. Because I feel like that's just something that not a lot of people talk about. And I think that if you're putting good content out there, it only helps the, the people that are doing it, the guests that you have on once you start having more guests and then the audience that listens to it. And I am just a huge proponent of getting content out there. The more you're able to do that the way that you know you, you can or you're uh, capable of, I think that you should because it just helps you and it helps everybody. I don't have any further questions for Mike. This has been great. But Bethany, do you have anything you want to follow up on? No, I don't have anything else other than are we invited to your next in-person gathering when Absolutely. Uh, in-person gatherings are up and about again? <laughs> yeah, you guys are always invited. There is always an invite extended to my friends over at Riker Danzig. So hopefully whenever the next one is, which I'm hoping November, but we'll see, you guys will be the first to know. And it's literally going to be held right across the street from headquarters plaza. So hopefully we'll see you there. And that's walking distance to my apartment. So that, that works too. Perfect. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's fantastic. And I can Thank walk you so there much, Mike. Well. This has been great. Thank yeah. you. Thank awesome. You Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me on. We appreciate you coming. Our next guest is one of our young superstars at the firm. Desiree, don't get too big of a head because you work with me. But Desiree McDonald just joined the firm. Has it, how long has it been, Desiree? Are we at a year and a half or so? No, next month makes a year. Makes a year. Uh, Desiree works with our title insurance team, and she's a litigator. And so far to date, she has been fantastic. And we have asked Desiree to speak about a case of interest in the title uh, industry. And she's talking about a very recent case, a, a case out of New York in July 2021, which, which I've read and thought was fantastic and of some interest. The case is You and Me Homes, LLC, the city of Suffolk, Desiree. Can you tell us why you thought it was, it'd be of interest to our audience? So sure thing. Back in 2013, the plaintiff here had purchased an undeveloped parcel of land up in Southampton, New York. The parcel was split zoned by the town, but both portions permitted residential development. The plaintiff decided one day that he wanted to build a one-family home 
on the property and began applying for all of the necessary permits with the county. Immediately thereafter, a nosy neighbor complained to the town that there was a developmental restriction on the property. And the town agreed, uh, both the town and the county had agreed that the proposed home could not be built because the parcel had contained a section that was a part of a public trail. The county also claimed that the parcel was subject to a restrictive covenant. Apparently, back in 2000, the county had sold the property at a tax lien sale. The bargain and sale deed there had contained a restriction that prohibited development other than the right to extend the road. Since that time, however, the property had been transferred numerous times without the restriction. In fact, the county had even issued a quick claim deed back in 2010 to a predecessor in title that did not include any restrictive language. So the plaintiff brought this action, you know, alleging that the covenant failed to run with the land and that the restriction was against public policy. And I'm looking at this. It's the opinion says in the hamlet of North City, in a town of Southampton, a six acre parcel with a two acre residential development. So in essence, Desiree, if the county got what it's want, this owner basically bought a property that had zero value to him. Isn't that really what was at stake for this homeowner? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Well, what happened? The court here actually agreed with the plaintiff and found that this purported restrictive covenant was void. The court uses some interesting language here. They weren't too pleased with the town or the county. They found that there was no proof that the original grantor and grantee intended that this covenant run with the land. There was no language in the deed that showed that intent. The court noted that if the county wanted this restriction to run with the land, they could have easily drafted a deed that included such language. The court also found that the county offered no statutory authority to support its ability to enter into such restriction. Like I said, the court was not pleased with the county or the town. They noted that both had overstepped their bounds and reversed the role of government in response to issues that implicate the Bill of Rights. In particular here, the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against the taking of property without just compensation. Interesting, because I think we all know, or we all think, maybe it's not always true, but Sometimes municipal and counties and states get a little bit of benefit from the, their court systems, but I guess that, Here, that, that was not, not the, case, the case. All right. The interesting thing I found too is, and we see this a lot sometimes in the title insurance industry, the town and counties went after the title companies, right, Desiree? Yes, they did. They ended up going after the title insurance companies. You know what the courts say there? How I do, because I, I found it of interest. What the court said was, finally, both the town and county attacked the title insurance company for not honoring its insurance policy and paying plaintiff's claim. And then the court says Justice Stefano was correct in his reluctance to proceed with the Nassau County action. If money is ever to be paid, it will be paid from government funds, not an insurance policy. 
as lawyers who represent underwriters and title agents, you don't see that very often in opinions. And you don't see, I think, an opinion as candid and as analytical as this opinion with regard to the property and with regard to the roles of all different parties. So that's why I was pleased when you picked this case out, Desiree. Anything else you want to tell us about the case, Desiree? I think that's all, Mike. Okay. And just to a plug for the Riker Danzig blog, if I'm not mistaken, Desiree, this was a case that we covered on our blog as well. Is that correct? This was recently a case that we posted on our blog, the Riker Danzig Banking, Title Insurance, and Real Estate Litigation blog that can be found on our website. So title nerds, keep an eye out for our blog. All right. And this concludes episode three of Title Nerds. In upcoming episodes, I will tell you, we are going to be interviewing some members of our bankruptcy group about issues in real estate litigation and bankruptcy. And also we'll be talking to some of our real estate lawyers in a separate podcast, as well as according some outside guests from other title underwriters and agents. And I thank you all for listening. And I thank you, Mike Ham, for participating. And I thank you, uh, Desiree, for your insight with regard to this, the case, you and me, Holmes. So thank you all. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.